if you're a teen superhero, what does that look like for you? What does that moment look like when you can't do everything anymore, but you're also not the kind of person who understands how to ask for help? Welcome to the Women of Marvel podcast. I'm Angelique Roche. And I'm Ellie Pyle. And today we're talking about a character I feel like deserves all the attention, small but mighty, the character that packs a sting. If you haven't guessed it, I'm talking about the Wasp. And to be more specific, we're talking about Nadia Van Dyne. Nadia is the hero of the brand new YA novel, The Unstoppable Wasp, Built on Hope, which was just released in July and is based on the Unstoppable Wasp comic book series. Not too long ago, I got to talk to the author of the book, Sam Maggs, who is an awesome writer and an equally amazing human being. She's written for Marvel before on books like Marvel Action, Captain Marvel, and even on video games like Marvel Spider-Man, The City That Never Sleeps. She's also just a super fun person to talk to, and she cares as much about superheroes as she does about elevating women in STEM and other fields. You know, there's this narrative that if you behave in a certain way and you're like the right kind of girl to like get along with the guys, then you can like chill at the guy table and they'll like accept you and then you'll be like one of the dudes or whatever. But I think that's the wrong way to think about including people into these spaces. I think we need to dismantle the tables that are currently there (laughs) and make ones that are welcoming to like all different types of humans. And that's what I really wanted to put forward in this book. I have had a chance to meet and interview Sam before, and I can confirm that she is not only an amazingly talented human, but also just amazing in general. I can't wait to hear more of y'all's conversation. Hi, Sam. Welcome back to Women of Marvel. Hi, I'm super excited to be here. Thanks for having me. So first of all, before we get into talking about your amazing new book, let's talk about how you first got into writing and how you ended up working in so many different media. Yeah, I've always wanted to be a writer. I was a big reader when I was growing up. I loved the escapism, especially of fantasy and sci-fi TV and video games and comics and It was pretty much the only thing I ever did. I I went to college for English. I did a master's in English. And shortly after that, I decided that it's what I was meant to do professionally. So I feel very lucky that I get to write for a living now. It's it's been like, I think like most writers, a kind of weird and winding road to get to where I am now. Everyone has their own kind of like strange path. But I do love, I write comics and I write novels and I write nonfiction and I write video games. And so it's really fun to be able to explore all those different mediums, even if I'm writing in kind of similar genres across the board, keeps it pretty fresh. <laughs> Do you have a favorite in terms of mediums to work in? Oh my gosh, I feel bad because I'm here to talk about a novel, but I love comics. <laughs> I just There's something so... Uh, writing novels is also collaborative because you get to work with like a great editor, sometimes a team of editors, which is awesome. But there's something about the collaboration in comics that is just really rewarding. I love working with illustrators. I love working with comic book editors. I love the visual medium. I love writing in script format. It's definitely my favorite. Video games is also super collaborative, but at that point you're working with a team of like 300 people. And so it's a very different kind of collaboration to comics. So I like the more 
it's like the happy medium between the hugeness of video games and the like extreme intimacy of of novels, I guess. Yes, that's entirely accurate to my experiences as well. So which medium did you start with first? I started writing nonfiction. So I wrote a lot online. I was in digital journalism for a while, writing a lot about women in geek culture. And then from there, I kind of took that theme and started writing nonfiction books. So my first book was called The Fangirl's Guide to the Galaxy. And it was like a nonfiction guide about how to get girls into comics, sci-fi, video games, you know, nerd culture. Um, And this was back in 2015 when that conversation was just starting to happen. And there had never been a book about that before, which seemed really strange. I just realized the way I said about right then sounded extremely Canadian. And I'm very self-conscious (laughs) No, we're we're pro-Canadian. Why would you be self-conscious about that? Um, but yeah, so I started in nonfiction because I kind of, that was what I knew how to write about and what I was comfortable writing about. And from there, I wrote a couple of nonfiction books about women in history, women in history of science and technology, and then groups of women in the history of, of sports even and, and politics. And that was really, really fun. And from there, I moved into video games. I've always loved video games, always played video games since when I was a kid playing Burger Time. I just, I think that medium being interactive has so much cool potential and is really the future of of narrative storytelling. And then I started to be like, hey, maybe I can write more fiction. I always found fiction very intimidating. I think because a lot of writers talk about fiction writing as though it's this sort of mystical thing that happens that they like connect with a muse or like a spirit from another dimension and their characters talk to them and like not once has that ever happened to me and if you're a writer that has a spiritual connection to like the creative world that's amazing and I'm very jealous but like that has never been me and so I kind of felt like oh maybe I'm not allowed to do this or meant to do this but you know it became apparent pretty quickly that it's like a skill that you can practice and learn and nobody knows how to write comics until someone teaches you how to write comics and no one knows how to write a video game until someone teaches you how to write a video game or a novel and, and you know So I've been very fortunate in all of the industries that I work in to find good mentors who have been willing to open that door for me and give me a shot. And I'm like totally self-taught, basically, other than that. That's awesome. So do you remember your first encounter with Marvel characters? Oh, my gosh. Well, growing up, my dad is a huge nerd. And I guess instead of like getting really into football or something and rebelling, I just decided to like go along with it. (laughs) My dad read like Golden Age comics like in the 60s. He was a huge comic book fan and he was always really into Spider-Man. His favorite character has always been Spider-Man. He loves Marvel comics. I was familiar with that in the X-Men cartoon, which is probably formative for a lot of people (laughs) around my age. I was on a Women of Marvel panel once where they asked how we had gotten into Marvel and you went down the line and every single one of us, it was the X-Men cartoon. Iconic. Like... So good. But I, I kind of felt that the comics, they kind of seemed like maybe they weren't for me necessarily. This was the 90s, too. And so there was a very specific aesthetic in the 90s that as like a 12 year old girl, it was not like that comic book is made for me, like, <laughs> which is totally fine. But I didn't really realize that there were all kinds of comics until I got to college when I discovered Runaways. And Runaways was really like my gateway comic. It opened the door for me where I picked up that book and I was like, oh my gosh, first of all, they're my age. They're like teenagers. That's amazing. But also it was so diverse. There were like all kinds of different characters. There were queer characters. And I was like, oh my gosh, 
these characters look like me. They talk like me. They have the same kind of problems that I do. My parents are not super villains, but like, you know what I mean? <laughs> like sort of relatable problems. And Frankie Bots Ready is like amazing. And Adrian Alfona, who is from Toronto, like me, I just like really connected with that comic and that opened the door to this whole new world. So I was like late to the party, I guess, but I'm glad I showed up at all. Well, having had this formative experience reading Runaways, has that influenced your writing for kind of younger readers? Definitely. I think in all of my writing, my goal is to let teens or kids who are reading the books that I make know that they're not alone, that there are other people out there who are either into the same things that they're into, are queer like they are, are girls, you know, that there are all different kinds of people out there who love superheroes and who love these kinds of stories. And there should be stories for all of those people that feature all of those people. And I think that's really the great thing about comics as a medium is there is no ceiling on what we can make. You know, we can always have Captain America, which is wonderful, but then we can also have Captain Marvel and we can also have Black Panther and we can also have the Unstoppable Wasp and we can have this whole breadth of heroes that all represent a different kind of person. That's pretty magical, I think. Absolutely. And I think in your new book, The Unstoppable Wasp, Built on Hope, that you were incredibly successful in showcasing this extremely relatable character and all of the things that really make her unique. Do you want to talk a little bit about what you love about Nadia? Oh my gosh, yeah. First of all, thank you. That's really nice of you to say. Um, I was very fortunate to sort of inherit Nadia and her girl squad from Jeremy Whitley, who wrote the Unstoppable Wasp comics for Marvel. And the comics are super brilliant. If you haven't had a chance to pick them up, I highly recommend them. They're so funny. The art's great. They've got a ton of wonderful women of Marvel in the comic as well, which is very cool. But what I love about Nadia in particular as a character is that she is so unrelentingly positive and optimistic. She was raised in a like Russian spy training facility with no parents. You would think that that would make someone very pessimistic or like kind of evil <laughs> in some way, but instead it just served the opposite purpose and it made her always want to look for the best in every situation, in every person. And I find that so inspiring because I am like a deep cynic. <laughs> and so <laughs> it's like, I really want to embrace, like I want to be more like Nadia because she's so positive. She loves her friends. She approaches every situation with like the utmost enthusiasm and a, a real positivity. And I just, yeah, I love that about her. And then in the book, you know, she is still a teen, even though she's a superhero and like a trained assassin and like a super genius. She is still a teenage girl who is an immigrant adjusting to life in America, trying to, you know, balance all the things that go along with being a teen girl, like being a good friend, you know, getting your driver's license, trying to figure out who you are, dealing with parental figures, dealing with your future, trying to figure out how to balance all your extracurriculars, um, going to therapy, dealing with mental health issues. She has so much going on in her life at the same time. And I'm the kind of person who always wants to try to do as much as possible at all times. But 
at a certain point that becomes untenable. And so if you're a teen superhero, what does that look like for you? What does that moment look like when you can't do everything anymore, but you're also not the kind of person who understands how to ask for help? There is so much of that that I'm excited to unpack. But first, (laughs) uh, I want to actually, if it's okay, read everybody the first sentence of this novel, because you had me with the first sentence, which is, she was going to force Nadia to hurt her. And Nadia hated when people forced her to hurt them. Yeah. And that is just such a specific human thing that translates so nicely to superheroes that you know, I kind of read that and I was like, oh, I'm in. <laughs> oh, yay. I'm so glad to hear that. Yeah, thank you. With Nadia, especially like she escaped from the Red Room because she didn't want to be what they were trying to force her to be. But the thing about being a superhero is that you do have to fight against injustice. And sometimes that puts her in a position where she has no choice but to like, you know, do things that maybe she doesn't necessarily want to do or wishes that people would just be better so that she doesn't have to do them. But, you know, I think we're seeing a lot in the world lately that you do have to maybe sometimes do things you don't want to do in order to stand up for equality. So that's like a very naughty thing, I think. And yet we wish everyone would just be better. Yeah, just be cool. Yeah, it'd be great. It shouldn't be that hard. <laughs> I also loved that you touched on Nadia's struggles with her bipolar disorder in this and specifically with her going to therapy. I'm going to spoil the whole first chapter, but it's just the first chapter that I'm spoiling. Um, But with her going to therapy, and I appreciated that you gave a shout out to Silk's therapist. I thought that was great. But do you want to talk a little bit about that? Because I think that's such an important thing with what you were talking about of normalizing things and, you know, showing people that there are people out there who are like them, who are relatable. What was your experience in deciding how to approach that aspect of Nadia's character? For me, with Nadia's bipolar disorder, it was important for me to include it in the book in a way that it becomes one of the many things in Nadia's life that she has to deal with. This is not a book about having bipolar disorder, but it is a part of who she is. And so this is something that she learned about herself in the comics and learned how to start dealing with that and to start treating that appropriately. And in the book, it was just important for me to see that she was continuing to be aware that this is a part of herself that, you know, like wanting to get her driver's license or like being a good friend or like all these other things that she has to deal with. It's just one of many parts of Nadia that make a whole. And like, man, I go to therapy. It slaps. I think everybody should go to therapy. If we all went to therapy, we would all be much better adjusted human beings, I think. And I think there are a lot of teens who struggle either struggle with or deal with or contend with mental health issues. Uh, You know, high school is a really, really challenging time. um, And that's nothing to be ashamed of. I think if, you know, going to therapy is what works for you, you should embrace that and not be afraid to share that with other people. And the more we talk about it and destigmatize it, like the better it is for everybody. So yeah, I just wanted Nadia to be like responsible about her mental health. And we had some really great consultants on board for the book as well, who are also consultants on the comic, I'm a, a great psychologist, Dr. Connor, who is so lovely to work with and actually gave us a lot of real tips and exercises that made their way into the book. So if you deal with panic attacks or anything like that, you might actually find something useful that came from a real clinical psychologist. So <laughs> it was great. It was great working with him. So in addition to 
helpful therapeutic tips. There are a lot of science facts <laughs> in this book. Do you have a particular favorite fun science fact that you learned while working on this or that you were excited to include? Oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I had one of my previous books was called Wonder Women, which like I said, was about the history of women in science. So I had a lot of experience taking complex scientific subjects or theories and distilling them down into a way that makes it understandable for like a standard non-sciencey reader. Like I have a master's in English and not in science, so I need to make these things understandable to someone of my background as well. So I had a lot of experience doing that. So it was really fun to be able to take that skill that I had previously developed and use it in a way that fit in this book really well. My favorite science fact is probably the one it comes up sort of later in the book, but it's about what a computer bug is, like what happens when there's a bug in the code. And I got to use like a really cool example about, you know, one erroneous dash in like a satellite launch code caused the whole thing to come crashing down. And it just shows how fallible our human made computer systems really are. And so I loved trying to find like good anecdotes to make these science moments more real and relatable. So the dedication page of this book reads, to all the girls sick of waiting for a seat at the table, we're making our own tables from here on out. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and specifically your efforts in STEM and getting people more involved there? Oh, yeah. I think that's something that can be applied to women in STEM, but also to women in comics, to women in video games, to women in media, to women in all of these industries that have found it challenging to break in or that have been dominated by men for such a really long time. You know, there's this narrative that if you behave in a certain way and you're like the right kind of girl to like get along with the guys, then you can like chill at the guy table and they'll like accept you and then you'll be like one of the dudes or whatever. But I think that's the wrong way to think about including people into these spaces. I think we need to dismantle the tables that are currently there <laughs> and make ones that are welcoming to like all different types of humans. And that's what I really wanted to put forward in this book. Like Nadia has this girl squad of teen female scientists a squad that she created when she discovered that S.H.I.E.L.D.'s list of the smartest people in the world didn't have a woman until number 27, which is obviously like total garbage. And she says in the comics that this is just because they're only including their friends, like they're including people they know. There's this inclusion bias where we tend to bring into our circle people who look like us. And so if the circle is started by like dudes, then the people that they bring in are going to be dudes. And it's understandable. That's human nature. But it's a problem, right? It's a problem that we're trying to rectify. So with this book and with all of my work, I really wanted to push the idea of female friendship and women supporting women, girls supporting girls being really the most paramount thing and the way that we all get to move forward together as a group. Because through no fault of our own, I think that women largely, because of the patriarchy, are conditioned to compete as opposed to cooperate because we've been presented with this idea for such a long time that like there's only room for one woman in the room or one woman at the table. And when, when the girl spot is filled, then, oh, there's no room for any more girls. So I have to kill her so that I can take her spot or whatever. And like the, again, like we were saying with comics, that's just not the case. There is an infinite amount of space. We should all be welcome in the room. And so women, we all need to be supporting each other. And I think the way that we 
push that idea forward is by showing girls supporting each other and holding each other up instead of trying to compete with each other for like the artificially created single spot. Do you have any advice for young women, not so young women who are trying to build their own tables, whether it's in any of the fields you've worked in or in other fields, either based on your own experiences or what you've witnessed with others? What I would say is there's never been a better time to put yourself out there and go for it, that we really need your voice more than ever, and that a lot of the traditional systems that were in place that kept women out, the old gatekeepers are outdated now. Like if you want to make something, you can just make it. If you want to make a comic, there's never been a better time to put it on Instagram or Twitter or Tumblr and to get out there and make it yourself. If you want to make a video game, there's never been a better time to learn Twine or Unity and put something online yourself or find a like-minded group of people who you want to work with and make something yourself because there is a whole audience out there just hungry for content that speaks to them. And from a very cynical point of view, you know, companies love money. And so when they see that a lot of people want your thing. Like that's a great way to break into the traditional forms of media. If that's what you want to do, if you want to stay indie, that's also great. You know, and the same goes for science. There's never been a better time to get into these fields and to join up with groups like women who code or girls who code, or there are so many great resources out there right now, specifically to help and support and lift up girls and women who want to do this stuff like this sick podcast. So yeah, I say, get out there. We need your voice. So pivoting a little bit from all of your great advice for everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, go on. (laughs) What did you find most challenging about writing this book in particular? Gosh, that's a great question. Um, This was my first young adult novel. So finding that voice was a new thing for me. The Girl Squad makes for a pretty big ensemble cast. So finding a story that you know, utilize all those characters in the most authentic way possible for them was a challenge. And then this is something that I think anyone who writes a superhero story probably contends with, but making like a compelling villain. I really wanted to make a compelling and relatable and understandable villain in this book. There was a a long process to get to that point, and I'm really happy with the way it turned out. But yeah, You know, it's tough with a superhero story because you know that the good guys are going to win and you are reading the book for the good guys, basically. So making that villainous character really like memorable and stand out is is a hard thing. But I would agree with you that superheroes are only as good as their villains and that that's what separates the really great superhero stories from the ones that are okay is very often the strength of the villain that's such a great point i think that is also true of superhero films which is really an interesting thing to think about that maybe the crux of what makes a good story is the villain and not the superhero is like ooh, love it or if even not just the villain but the thing they're opposing, the strength of the thing they're they're up against. Yeah, that they're up against. In this book, I would even argue as much as it's like the person or the bad guy or whatever, it's it's Nadia's own inability to slow down for five minutes and to like 
recognize that you don't have to be perfect at everything and that you don't have to do everything all at the same time and that you can stop juggling eight of your 27 balls and like the world isn't going to end. And I actually personally don't know how to do that. So maybe maybe one day I'll learn. <laughs> you anticipated my next question, which was, is that something you relate to at all? <laughs> oh, yeah, that's totally where the idea for this story came from. And I think it's something that probably a lot of teenagers can relate to, too, which is just that so much happens all the time. That's how I feel. It's just like there's so much all the time, especially these days. It's just like balancing all these different things in your mind. I work in all these different fields, which is amazing. And I'm very fortunate, but it is challenging. And then also trying to like be married and have friends and also like work out and eat well and like maybe buy a house and have a pet. And like, there's just, I don't know, for me, it's a lot all the time when I feel like I'm at my strongest when I'm like laying on the couch for six to 12 hours doing nothing. And so like, yeah, I definitely struggle with that. And I also struggle maybe with something that a lot of creatives feel, which is that if you're not constantly increasing your output or like consistently being productive, that the world will move on and forget about you and you will lose all of your intrinsic value, which is problematic for like so many reasons. Your value as a human is not tied to your professional output or your art. You know, maybe you can not put out a billion books in a year and people will still think you're cool or your career won't Dive bomb. I think a lot of creatives probably struggle with this, but it's really hard for me to say no to work mm -hmm. or to anything that is going on in my life. It's really hard to learn how to prioritize yourself and have a work-life balance. Yeah, maybe I'll figure out how to do that one day. I'm like 31, so we'll see. <laughs> because it's always a trade-off of if you do this one thing, you can't do this other thing. And how important things are doesn't always necessarily stack up next to how much you want to do them. Yeah, it's such a great point. Like, oh, this pays really well, but I don't want to do it. This is a really fun project, but it doesn't pay at all. This will probably be really good for my career, but I don't have the time because I'm working so that I can earn money to eat tomorrow. Like, yeah, there's so many different factors that go into it. I think you were right, though, both about the fact that creatives and freelancers in particular struggle a lot with the I have to be working all of the all of the all of the time and also correct about the fact that that isn't true. That isn't your inherent value and that very often figuring out those ways that you can kind of find that sweet spot of doing your best work while also still doing enough work can be a real challenge for people. That's such a good way of putting it. I think a lot of the lessons that you have Nadia go through in this book are not just important for young readers, but also everyone for all of their lives. <laughs> like there's stuff that I was reading in this that I was like, oh, yeah, that's a good reminder about being a person in yeah. the world. <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. It's like when I was starting to write this book. Again, I came into it with this wonderful girl squad provided to me by Jeremy Whitley. You know, Nadia has her four amazing, super tight girlfriends. I really wanted to investigate what has the potential to come in between that. And I think that a lot of us are constantly trying to figure out how to be the best possible friend to the people that we love that we can be. But things happen. You get busy. You get a new job. You start a new relationship. You don't realize that you're distracted and you're being more of a taker than a giver. There are all sorts of things that can impact a relationship. And I wanted to get into that a little bit, especially because I think that we focus in media a lot on romantic relationships. 
but platonic relationships are as if not more important than that in a person's life I think these friends have the potential to be with you longer and more consistently and yeah it's just as important to nurture and to give time to those relationships they're still relationships you know and yeah I wanted to really focus on the nature of friendship you are singing one of my favorite songs right there Yes. Not that I don't love smooching because I love to read smooching, but I also think we need to talk more about friends. (laughs) Friends and, you know, the places where smooching and friends overlaps and the fact that it isn't always a friendship leads to smooching is the victory condition. Sometimes smooching leads to friendship. Yes, that's so true, too. Or like mentorship. Mentorship between women is something we never talk about. And Nadia has all these amazing older women in her life that she looks at as mentors like Mockingbird, like the original Wasp. And that's such an interesting dynamic and relationship too, that it is kind of parental, but then is also a friendship. And yeah, I feel like we don't see that a lot, especially with girls. Have you seen a shift in that in the industries that you've worked in that as we've had these newer tables or, you know, tables that are under construction, let's say, that there are more women who are now in a position to be mentors and thus more opportunities for those kinds of relationships to exist. Absolutely. Yes. I think that it's an issue of time as the more time goes by and we've had women who have been in these industries longer, we're going to be able to benefit from that. I rely a lot on my relationship with Margaret Stoll, who is like a wonderful, not only a Marvel writer, but also a video game writer like me. And I value that I'm able to go to her as basically the only woman with like 20 years of experience writing video games in this industry that I know of at all. So I think that's definitely true. I think there is another side to that, though, which is something that I don't really get into in this book, but I would love to at some point, is that the internalized misogyny that we all deal with that has been so like conditioned and programmed into us that I've also had experiences with older women where like they don't want to mentor younger women because they see them as threats, which is totally understandable given the environment that they came up in professionally where there was only room for one girl in the room. Like you want to defend that and that was how they survived as long as they did. And so I'm very empathetic about that. But I think that's something we all have to interrogate within ourselves all the time because I don't know about you, but I had that phase when I was a teenager. I was like, I'm not like other girls. Like, I wear Converse. I'm like, cool. I'm cool, girl. I don't like pink. Like, whatever. But then there comes that point where you're like, well, why did I think that liking pink was bad or stupid? Who made me think that? Why did I think being a girl was such a, a bad thing? I don't know. It's, it's something that we're all unlearning all the time. I don't get into that too much in this book, but maybe in a future book, because I think it's really relevant. I look forward to reading that book, too. Oh, get out. So you've written Marvel characters before. What is it like taking a character who has this whole life before you encountered them and telling a new story? I think it's great because there's nothing that I find more intimidating than the blank page. Like (laughs) when I have to sit down and create a character myself from nothing, it's like there's so many options and I just like melt down and I like don't know what to do. Whereas 
coming to an established character is actually part of what I think makes fan fiction so valuable as a training tool for writers, which is that you don't have to spend ages worrying about like world building or that stuff all exists for you. And you just really get to focus on the story and the theme and like the tale you want to tell within this box that already exists. I really like working within a box. It's what makes video games so much fun for me is that you are very contained into like whatever the engine can provide you, however many designers you have. I always talk about how working in video games as a writer is being like, oh, I want to tell a story about like 18 unicorns. And they're like, okay, okay, okay. We only have art for a goat. So is it okay if it's 18 goats? And you're like, oh yeah, no, fine. That's cool. I think I can make that story about that work. That's fine. And then the rigger shows up and he's like, listen, we could only have one goat on the screen at a time. So now your story about 18 unicorns has become a story about one goat. And you're like, oh yeah, no, this is pretty similar. I think it can work. So you you have to be very like adaptive to constraints in video games. And that's kind of what I like about working with IP characters too, is you're coming to, I mean, you come to Captain Marvel and you know that she's brash, she's kick butt, she's no nonsense, but she also has trouble relying on other people and is independent to a fault and you know, you have this list of things. And so from there, you can kind of piece together, well, what lesson do I want Carol or Nadia or Peter to learn? What do I want the takeaway from this to be? And then kind of building a story out from there. And I really enjoy that. I can see where other people would find it very limiting. And I totally understand that. But I appreciate it. I like a box. <laughs> I actually do too, as an editor. Like, I would much prefer to work with the middle of a story than, you know, the beginning. Yeah, totally. So, do you feel that there are lessons that you've been able to take from one medium into another? And how have your skills developed across all of these different cross classing that you've done? No one's ever asked me that question before. And it's such a great question. Honestly, I think think what video games have taught me the most and I've taken this to all of my different jobs is to just not be precious about your work and to be able to iterate quickly video games go through so much iteration they go through so much rapid change over a period of years that you have to get so used to writing something and throwing it in the garbage the next day and then writing something else and throwing it in the garbage the next day and like being cool with that has been really helpful because I think a lot of writers struggle and totally understandably so with getting notes or taking edits. It's like a needle in the heart every time someone's like, this thing, this child that you created is ugly. <laughs> and you're like, no. <laughs> but then they're like, but we know how to fix it and make it better. And you're like, great. And so I have like trained myself out of the like defensive urge and into the like, oh, thank God I'm working with people smarter than me or more talented than me or with a different experience than me who can make this thing that I have created much better <laughs> with their input. So iteration speed, not being sensitive. And then I have worked in television as well as like an on-camera personality and something that I took from that field that I apply across all fields of work now and I feel is generally applicable to life is like literally just be cool. Like if you're cool to work with, and you hate your deadlines, and you're like not a diva, if you're just generally cool to everybody that you work with, and you give everybody their shout outs, and you trust the people that you work with, because they're at the top of their field as well. And like, they're here for a reason. And everybody wants to make the best possible product, like, just be cool and be on time. And that will take you so much farther. I have so little patience these days for what they call the genius a-holes. 
I have no patience for that. This is a very common thing that happens in video games, especially. And it's like, man, I could find someone just as talented or who I could teach a little bit to become just as talented, who like isn't a jerk <laughs> to me and all my friends. And so, yeah, those are the big lessons. That's maybe not writer specific necessarily, but I feel like it's valuable. <laughs> to people other than writers as well. Yeah. And what you were saying about not being a jerk goes back to what you were saying about building these squads and about people wanting to sit at tables with their friends. You know, as we kind of broaden that, you know, being someone who people like working with has been a huge factor in my career, in so many of the careers that I have seen. Networking isn't who you know, it's how good those relationships are. That's such a good point. And I feel like I try, again, to be really sympathetic or empathetic or whatever with the people who have either been in this industry for a really long time or even people who like consume this media and feel a really strong connection to it. And I understand the like knee jerk reaction of like, these are new people. These are new characters. I don't know them. What's going to happen to my characters? What's going to happen to the thing that I love? Like this has been a sanctuary for me for so long. This has been the office that I've created for so long. Like what's going to happen to me and the things that I love. And like, that is a very human reaction. But I think that the great thing about letting more people tell their own stories and letting more different types of people tell their own stories is that we all now get more new different kinds of stories like that's amazing I'm sick of seeing the same story over and over and over again told in like 76 different iterations and they've all been great and I've enjoyed all of them but like I'm ready for some fresh stories just even as a consumer, like I want to see something different. I want to learn about something new. I just read this great YA novel called The Downstairs Girl by Stacey Lee, which was about a girl in 19th century Boston who also happens to be Chinese American who starts to write like an advice column, like an Ask Annie kind of column. And the book itself is amazingly written. And it's like the plot is very sweet and the characters are great. But also I learned a whole bunch of stuff about being a Chinese American in the 19th century that I never knew, you know, that's my own ignorance, obviously speaking, but I came out of that so much more enriched than if I had just read like another book about a white girl in Boston. And so it's just like, man, it's just cool for everybody. Like everybody wins. Absolutely. So what are you most excited for readers to experience about this book? Oh my gosh. I'm just excited to introduce hopefully more readers to Nadia because I think that she is such a great character. We don't have a ton of teen superheroes. I love that she gets to go on more adventures because I think her character is so deserving of like so much love and attention. And I hope that a bunch of kids and teens and adults and anyone who reads this book really are able to find someone in the pages that reminds them of themselves or a relationship that they have or that they can read it and be like, you know what, it's okay if I if I slow down for a couple minutes. And I don't know, I'm excited for more people to meet Nadia. Well, I am excited to have met you. Oh, me too. What a delight. This was so much fun. Thank you again so much for having me. Thank you again to Sam Maggs for taking the time to be on the show. The Unstoppable Wasp, built on hope, is now available for purchase. All right, so I have a very hard question for you. What was your favorite part of your conversation with Sam? I'm listening. Go. <laughs> that is a tough question because we had 
so much fun. I don't even know where to start. But I loved how much thought she put into every aspect of this book from the dedication about, you know, women building their own tables now. The very first line gives us so much relatability. And that's kind of how I felt, you know, through the whole book and through the whole conversation that Sam is such a delightful human person and she makes Nadia such a delightful human character. Oh, I really love this. This makes me so happy. I can't wait to read this book. What have you been reading in the meantime? Uh, so I've been digging into the crates, i.e. Marvel Unlimited. But one of the things that comes to mind every time someone's like, what are you reading? I'm like, Dr. Afra by Alyssa Wong. Go pick it up. Read it now. That's a good answer. <laughs> and what about you? Uh, I recently got a chance to dive back into Spider-Verse for one of our other podcasts. And that was so much fun getting to talk to Nick Lowe about this crazy series that we had worked on so many years ago. But to also kind of go back and look at it with fresh eyes was just great. You can check out that episode on Marvel's Pull List. So now I have to ask, because I am a huge fan of Spider-Verse, do you have a favorite spider person that originated in Spider-Verse? I'm just going to I'm going to keep it narrow because spider person is a big it's a big swath. I know. Situation. Um, I'm incredibly biased because though she did not originate in Spider-Verse, I had kind of gotten to be with silk from her moment of creation through spider-verse and into her own series so she will always be super close to my heart but i also loved you know spider who kind of came out of that and then getting to see her show up elsewhere later was a real thrill kenny is my favorite because deadly and adorable but cindy cindy is a a, a solid spider person for a lack of a, a better word so if you have been reading stuff and you enjoyed this conversation, let us know. Tell us what you're up to. Say hi. Send us an email at womenof at marvel.com or you can tweet at us at Marvel using the hashtag women of marvel or you know what ellie where can they tweet at you can they tweet at you can they say hi on the interwebs uh they can tweet at me at ellie pile i'm not good at twitter but that is where i am if you want to try and make me be better i am here for it and expect all of the tweets at Angeli crochet that's a-n-g-e-l-i-q-u-e-r-o-c-h-e and until next time this is marvel your universe Women of Marvel is produced by Rebecca Seidel and Zachary Goldberg, along with Ellie Pyle, Judy Stevens, and me, Angelique Rocher. Our audio development manager is Karen Heffa, and Jill DeBoff is our director of audio. Special thanks to Sam Maggs. <laughs>